Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Chirag Pancholi. Chirag is an experienced CEO, strategy executive, consultant, and fintech and suretech founder. Currently, he is the co-founder of Jenny Life, an innovative, mobile-first life insurance provider geared towards empowering women and providing straightforward coverage and financial security. Prior to Jenny Life, Chirag worked in investment banking for big names such as Goldman Sachs and the Federal Reserve Board. He holds an MBA strategy from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, a master's of public policy from Harvard University, and a bachelor of science in engineering from the University of Maryland. He went on to serve as strategy officer at Assurian, the world's largest handset insurance provider, where he witnessed how rewarding it was to help fix people's lives through insurance, and he's never looked back. Welcome, Chirag. Thank you so much for being here. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you, Sean. Oh, good. Yeah, nice to see you. So um, I'm going to start with a little rapid fire, and I may change it up from what I had planned now that I've seen your guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first question. What's your favorite song or the first song you learned on your guitar? So the first song I ever learned on my guitar was Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, nice. Awesome. That's not one that I would have expected. Ozzy Osbourne. That sounds like a hard one, too. It is, it is hard, uh, but I, I was not very popular in school, so I didn't have any alternatives to all my free time. <laughs> oh, we're we're going to get into this, like, quote, unquote, popular. What is your guilty pleasure? That could be food or way you like to spend time or bad habit. Yeah, I think my guilty pleasure is literally hiding away from my children and my wife to actually play this Jackson guitar behind me. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's a fun, guilty pleasure. It's supposed to be very relaxing. My husband loves his guitar. And especially when I, I do, actually do not like it when he plugs it into the, um, what's the thing called the, what's the thing that makes it really loud? Yeah, the amplifier. Oh, sure, sure. the amplifier. I'm like, turn that thing off. I like a little acoustic guitar. Um, sure. Are you, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but are you more spontaneous or more of a planner? Oh boy, you know, um, I ride my snowboard goofy footed, if you know what that means. It's, yes. you know, I'm right-handed, but I actually go the other way, you know? Yeah. So I'm kind of an oddity in that, when that comes to it. I am uh, spontaneous, uh, sprinkled. Uh, uh, how do I do it? I'm a pizza crust of well-planning with sprinkling of spontaneity, if that makes any sense. Totally. You like some structure to your spontaneity. Yeah. I do yeah. think creative creativity can come from a bedrock of some structure yeah i like that um what's the best or your most favorite concert that you've ever attended <laughs> uh so i went to go see uh i'm a uh i'm a former headbanger oh. uh, did you have long hair and stuff <laughs> i i tried to, i had a mullet uh oh, back in the 80s, 90s 
and I did have an Iron Maiden uh, decaled uh, jean jacket. And uh, so, <laughs> yes. Um, and there are pictures on the internet, I'm sure. Or actually, not. this is pre-internet, so I'm sure there's oh, some geez. out there. But um, I went to see uh, Aerosmith uh, oh, nice. with uh, a hair metal band, I believe, Motley Crue, a long time ago. It was the loudest thing I had ever heard in my entire life. Uh, but it was just the most amazing experience because of the vitality and the energy was just, uh, it saturated the environment. And I had never experienced that before in my life. Yeah, it sounds it fun. What, um, what is your morning ritual? My morning ritual is pretty straightforward. I'm fairly uh, an early riser uh, by choice. Um, I like the calmness of the home while I make my coffee. Um, and I like to know that my family and my children are sleeping. Uh, it gives me a sense of security and purpose. Um, but I, I need my coffee fix immediately, and I like to have it at my pace and my time and temperature. So I make my yeah. coffee, get ready for my wife, and then about I get about 10 to 15 minutes of quiet solitude of just staring out at my backyard, my garden. Um, and then, you know, the day starts, and it's zero to 60. So yeah. that 15 minutes is just sort of that, uh, time for pensive uh, calibration. Yeah, I like it. I, I feel like um, obviously now we're in a digital time in the world. And so everything coming at us is all these messaging things of like how to live a better life and all the shoulds. And there's a lot of talk around morning ritual and kind of that peace and quiet. And I find that a lot of CEOs and people who are running busy lives really appreciate that quiet time. So they can almost like set the tone for their day of feeling in control. Um, so that, I like that. How do you take your coffee? Uh, straight, uh, black with no additives whatsoever. Uh, I need the full octane. So mine tends to be a little bit sludgy, if you will. Oh, yeah. Uh, like a Turkish coffee? Yeah. It's very thick, you know, thicker than usual, you know, from Starbucks, yeah. for example. And because I just need the octane. Yeah, um, I get it. I'm a coffee girl, so I get it. What's your dream vacation? You know, my dream vacation is pretty straightforward. Um, like, are we beach? Are we uh, yeah, mountains? Yeah. I'm a mountain guy. I like solitude because, as you know, Shauna, running organizations and motivating people and trying to make positive change is, an, is a really strong, it's a hard job. Um, one we love very much. Wouldn't change mm -hmm. it for the world. But having that quiet solitude of just hiking the mountains and seeing a line of sight of some snow-capped peaks uh, maybe seeing a, a, a you know a caribou or reindeer is really interesting. Um, always have my bear spray handy with me because I go hiking <laughs> where there are bears uh, yeah. out in, in Pacific Northwest as well as Canada and Montana. And so I really enjoy just being uh, detached from electronic uh, encumbrances. Yeah, uh, and it's a it's a forced connection, and hopefully you're going to raise yeah. kids to also be in the great outdoors with you because. It's Absolutely. like you'll realize as they get older, it's like, oh, no, I got them captured and captive with no technology, which is <laughs> rare these days. What is one of the qualities about you that people would be surprised to learn or maybe just underestimate? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I am actually quite tolerant of various different viewpoints. Um, people assume that as type A's, you know, as leaders of organizations and type A individuals that, that our North Star is very immovable or 
Um, that you're rigid or something. Rigid, right. It's not flexible. And I think, you know, that um, Bruce Lee, uh, a former Seattle uh, native here, resident, said something, be the water. And you may have heard this, you know, be yeah. the water. Water can be still or it can be thunderous and crashing. You know, it can be, it can fill any shape vessel, you know, but it might be amorphous at the same time. And so I really like that notion of that. And I think leadership should be like that. It is water. It can be thunderous and it can also be soothing and nourishing. And I think for me, people sometimes assume that I'm very high paced and very focused on the mission would assume that, you know, our tolerance of flexibility is very uh, measured in millimeters, but it's really not. And I think that that's sort of the, the way people would be surprised to see that I am fairly facile with uh, understanding, appreciating, appreciating different viewpoints. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you're saying that even right now. I love, love, love that answer. Um, but especially right now, just even in our country, as we uh, today is what is today? It's October 16th. So we're a few weeks out, like from the election. And you just find that it's just for me the craziest time ever to be uh, alive and in our country when it almost feels like um, people are just so intolerant and so not flexible to hear and learn and grow from different opinions. And I know that you're talking about it in the context of business, but I think it can be applied everywhere. And it's a great, yeah. great trait to have. And it's always the person that you want uh, leading and at the dinner table, just everywhere. It's great. And you know what? I can't take ownership for that viewpoint. I actually uh, read a book by James Clear, uh, C-L-E-A-R is his last name, James Clear. He wrote a great book. Um, he's, he's one of these great people um, who's an author, uh, thoughtful, um, just, you know, just a, a swell guy to look at. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Mm. And, and it's, I recommend people read it, particularly in this time of flux uh, and consternation. Um, I think it's important. One of the key tenets he mentioned there in, uh, in Atomic Habits is, you know, you can change minds by being friendly by, and having proximity. And that's why when we say, hey, let's have dinner together, let's have coffee together, that sort of proximity does remove barriers and barbed wire that people would assume that they would have. So, you know, I love to talk to people and say, you know what, why don't you sit down with me? Let's have breakfast together. Let's have lunch together. It's on me. And that it, it seems very sort of, you know. Like a lost so, art. Yeah, it's like a lost art, but it's kind of like, oh, of course it, that would work. But it, when you really think about it, how many times do we battle people or we've seen people battle each other on social media or on mass That's media. ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. First of all, you're 3,000 miles away. You're talking to an electronic device. You're not together in the room. You know, let's sit down together and, and, and have a cup of coffee and some dangers yeah. together. And that proximity does help. And I, I think so any outlook I have is really just guided by James uh, Clear. And a book I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. Thank you for the suggestion. So you started yeah. talking in the beginning about your childhood and coming from humble beginnings. Where where were you born and where did you grow up? Tell me about your sure. childhood. Sure. Uh, I was born in uh, India, um, northwest India, a uh, state called Gujarat. Uh, my parents um, we emigrated here with you know typical eighteen dollars to their to their name sort of thing. Um, my dad had come here first and he had somewhat stabilized. And he brought us, my, my mom and, and my sister and myself over. I think I was four or five years old, very young. Um, and we, of course, were uh, red-blooded citizens, you know, American, I believe, red, white, and blue. Um, and so, you know, growing up, uh, you know, through Section 8 housing, um, 
uh, it's it's an interesting experience. Uh, where where I, did you grow up? Uh, Washington D.C. Okay. Uh, back in the early '80s and mid '80s, it was an interesting time. It's not what it is now. Now it's very beautiful and gentrified. And before, Washington D.C. was not uh, so appealing, uh, particularly after five o'clock at night. Um, and so, you know, uh, humble beginnings, typical immigrant story. You know, Asian um, immigrant story. Got to work. Got to work hard. My dad had two jobs. My mom had two jobs. She was a short order cook at an Indian restaurant on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and she had her assembly line job in the 80s. It's all she could get. It's all my parents could get. And so from very on, we were lashkey kids. I mean, mm -hmm. and were they educated? Uh, my father was an accountant, uh, chartered accountant. And, um, you know, immigration nowadays is easier than because of the democratization of information, just basic information, like how to get to a particular street. Mm -hmm. What are the different routes? What bus schedule is there? If you imagine yourself before mobile phones and before internet, finding out, you know, in a different town, even 20 miles away would be very difficult to find well, out. And then the there's, and there's language barriers. And there are language barriers. Thankfully, my father spoke excellent English uh, as an educated man, but my mom uh, was not as much. And so, you know, when you think about the immigrant experience, immigrant experience now, although none of them are easy, oftentimes, it's easier to on-ramp into our American social fabric than it was previously. And that's simply because technology and sophistication of information dissemination. So humble background, uh, Section 8 housing, saved up every penny. Uh, fun fact, we never celebrated Christmas, not because we didn't like Christmas or anything, just didn't have any money. It's just yeah. simple. And how was, uh, how was money um, kind of, how do I put this? Like, how was it described to you or how did money... Uh, show up for you as a value when your child was like, oh, when I get money, I'll be this, or I, I am focused on money or is it, or did they reshape it? I've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast, particularly who have really crushed it. Several of whom had parents who kind of um, changed the script almost to make them believe that they were full of riches because they had, you know, love or, you know, because they, one guy was telling me that his mom was a waitress and would bring home food and present it in a way that was beautiful. So he, he felt that it was, you know, that they weren't poor, but he looks back, he's like, oh my God, we were really poor. <laughs> like, uh, wow. Yeah, it's consistent. You know, I don't think that we looked at money as like an objective. It was not even described as a tool. Money as a pecuniary device is sort of an abstract artifact anyways. Uh, for civilizations, and even more so in digital money. But it was really the fact that you could control your own destiny by employing your, you know, assets that you have and mm. doing something of, with yourself. I think the idea of success is really um, a byproduct of actually employing your talents or passions or understanding what people need and then deploying your passions and talents to serve that need. And if it's at scale, and you can do it at scale, then you have scalability of your contributions to society. But then thereafter, the byproduct could be paper wealth or actual wealth or notoriety, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah. And so I think for my parents, it wasn't like, you know, get money. It was kind of like typical, be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, you know, okay. real straightforward. You know, there's only three things you could be. Anything outside of that, you're a failure in Indian American society. But we're Jewish, so it's the same. It's the same messaging. Yeah. It's like, and was there was there pressure to for you to stay in the community? Did they find an Indian community, or were 
or were there not a lot of Indian families to relate to like in grade school? Yeah, I think that there weren't that many. I was the only uh, American of Indian descent um, or background in my middle school. Uh, I think most of high school, there was two other people, I think, in a class of 400. Um, so there weren't that many comparables to me, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in the mid-80s. Um, you know, Indian Americans, there aren't that many in the United States to begin with. There weren't certainly that many in, uh, in the early to mid eighties. And so therefore, you know, it was sort of like sort of that army of one, like, Hey, it's just me, you know, mm. I have to be the best I can be not because people are seeing me as that one person who's different than everybody else. Who's you know 98% white. Um, you know, my best friends were Jewish Americans, you know, Israeli Americans and, and um, a lot of shared traits between the two two segments. For sure, um, for sure. Humility and, and just focus and doing well, doing good kind of thing. Yeah, um, Educate, so education just, being a, a strong value. Food. Absolutely. <laughs> food, of course. Yes. And what about what about marrying within the tribe? Is that a, is that a message? No, you know, I think that um, perhaps that might have been that may be over amplified than it really is. I think I think most cognizant families who understand that societies move, there's emigration and the soul of a person and the quality of that person is more important than anything else. Oh, I sure. just love the fact that our country is such a melting pot. I mean, I love it. I mean, you know, we have a African-American, half African-American, half Indian-American vice presidential candidate. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like, mm -hmm. it's just like wow. You know, before that, you know, was an Afri a half white, half black president of the United States twice over, right? Yeah. It's just it's like, wow, where else in the world can you do it than here? Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, obviously um, really excited about what we're doing here in our country. It's not the best country in the world. I mean, we always have, it's arrogant for us to say we're the best country in the world, you know? Right. But I, it's it sounds like everybody's thing. trying to improve and trying to grow. Yeah, and, uh, hopefully the values yeah. of the values of continuing to include and realize what we've gained from all the incredible um, people who have come to our country and made it what it is. So uh, you talked about being a latchkey kid. Was there anyone like who did you have to kind of ultimately grasp onto um, to influence you? Because obviously it's not it's not a small feat to end up at University of Maryland studying engineering. If your parents aren't around to kind of give you all of the support and guidance. Um, and money to make that happen. How did how did you end up there? Yeah, so uh, I'll 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 say something that is probably not usually said. I didn't have any uh, mentors. I didn't have any examples. Literally, I had none. Teachers, uh, no teachers, no, no uh, coaches. I, no, no coaches. I didn't play any sports because we didn't have any money to to do sports. Uh, although I did play lacrosse in high school and then subsequently in. Um, but that's just out of my own volition. So I know it sounds strange because you heard these podcasts and interviews, people like, well, I met this one person and she changed my life or he changed my life. I quite frankly, I, I, I hadn't. And, and I don't know what that speaks, what that means, but I just found my own way, quite honestly. I would just watch other people's behavior, their actions, and just suss out patterns, if you will. I, I recognize patterns. I think what well, that's my sort of hidden talent is I could see patterns. Mm. Give me, is there an, do you have an example of that? Because I love that. Yeah, you know, it's, um, so for example, a pattern I learned that was one of my, one of my classmates who was just killing it on, you know, in grammar, you know, and in, in, in these classes, and he was really smart, but how he was, his modus operandi day to day 
you know, after school and on the weekend was something I never knew was possible. You know, he said, you know, he said, oh, on Friday nights or Friday after Friday, I go to the library. Mm. And I do my homework on a Friday night, Friday afternoon. And that way I have my whole weekend to goof off. And I don't have that dreaded Sunday night feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have so much work to do. I don't know if I'll get it done before 7.05, you know, in the morning on Monday. And it just never dawned on me that, yes, I could go to the library at 3.05 p.m. You know, yeah. walk open right now. It was that sort of like, aha. So that's one pattern. And then another pattern, you know, was was a friend of mine and and she was like had this trapper keeper i don't know if you use trapper keeper. I, I remember those oh my gosh you just took me back the trapper <laughs> i love the trapper keeper she had the trapper keeper with the cute puppies on it you know and i remember thinking like oh that's so cute you know um she's a dear dear friend uh classmate back then um and she had trapper keeper and her things were organized she would actually write down her homework assignments from every class that was due and i never knew i didn't think it never occurred to me that i could have a notebook and I could write down my to-do list. I would just keep it in my brain. I would mm. just lock it in there and I would just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it on, on the bus ride. Like, okay, I need to do this for English. I need to do this for, you know, pre-cal. I need to do this. And, and, and invariably humans are imperfect. And so you, you'd once in a while, you, no matter how regimented you are, you'd forget something and you'd mm -hmm. feel awfully like, oh my gosh, I forgot to do the yeah. diary out you know, yeah. like, those are good habits. So organization and like sense of urgency, you know, not, not procrastinating. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up at that age, like in high school? What were you thinking about besides, you know, girl, was, besides girls? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really, have, I, I was not a very good looking person there. I, I don't think I am either now, but you know, I did, I, I don't think that was really in my universe, quite honestly. Uh, obvious besides the fact that there's biological driver. Yeah. You know, of course, those are always there. Um, uh, but even a nerd wants to have a girlfriend kind of thing, right? Even a nerd, <laughs> like nerd is a nerds wants to have a girlfriend. But it was tapped down by the simple fact that I was just a complete nerd. Like, I was just like, you know. Um, and so, therefore, for me, I just was like, well, I'd just be a scientist of some kind, you know. Oh, a scientist. Solve, yeah, just solve basic problems like how do we do cold fusion, you know. And then maybe if I was a physicist, they'd send me up on a rocket and try to do experiments up there in space. Um, and so that was sort of, you know, this is, you know, the shuttle, you know, sort of the late right. 80s, early right. 90s. Um, and it's just like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. Did you go to your 20 year high school reunion? I didn't. Uh, I didn't make it out because I'm on the West Coast by then. And I just couldn't, you know, yeah. make it but out. But would these people, if you went to high school, would they be surprised to see where you've come? Or did you always have, even if you were a nerd or maybe a scientist or, or whatever you're defining yourself to be, did you always have uh, drive? I think so. I've always had drive because, I mean, I started working when I was 11 years old. I think it's oh, illegal wow. to employ someone at 11. <laughs> I don't think you could do it at 11, uh, but I had my first paper route at 11. And um, I remember to this day, because I grew up in DC and Maryland suburbs eventually, and uh, the the truck would come and deliver newspapers bundles at our driveway at like 4:30 in the morning, and you would hear it because it would just, it would be a big thud, you know, outside your house. And then I'd get up, you know, at 4:30, and I just you know clip the binders, and then I'd I'd take the newspapers and put them in a rubber band, put them in my satchel, ride my huffy bike, and I'd memorize all the house names in this you know 400 house, 500 house route or whatever it was, and I'd just drop them off. Um, 
come rain, sleet, snow, hail, whatever. Like it was morning. I was like, That's, I got to do this. People need to read their newspaper. You know, it was one of these things. Like, I can't, you know, this is before CNN and everything else really took off. And so I remember doing that at 4, 4.45, 5 in the morning, even when it was cold and without coffee. Um, <laughs> and, that, and so by the time I get to school, I'd be tired, but you know, it is what it is. You just plot. Yeah, just you've, you've got that through. inner, you've got that inner drive. That's awesome. You gotta do it. So, so it's so interesting because, yeah, in researching you and learning more about you, I mean, obviously you're, you're highly educated, was the pursuit of, you know, Harvard and University of Chicago, the Booth School, like, were you, were these necessities to continue on your path or were you like, I'm not quite sure what I want to do, so I should probably just get more education? That's a great question. I think um, many people tend to pursue um medals of achievement because the medals are shiny and they can um brag about them so oh, they, they help your resume too as a recruiter i'm oh. like oh that doesn't it doesn't yeah. hurt that if i'm like on linkedin and i'm sure. typing in you know harvard or university sure. of chicago i think for me it was um i had this notion that you know when i after graduating undergraduate school uh, I knew that I wanted to be a leader of some kind. And then so I just assessed what types of experiences and education does a well-rounded inspirational leader, dare I say, that I would like to become someday, what kind of background would they need to have? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I, I always thought a science is like science would be important. It's a sort of a bedrock because it creates a logical thinking apparatus. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's just like test, you know, controls, variables. You just it's just structured thinking. Because if you don't structure thinking, then you can kind of get uh, distracted. If you oh yeah, and that's not to say that liberal arts aren't worth it. I actually, now in my old age, I actually think liberal arts are even more valuable than quant and math. Quite honestly, I think I might be iconoclastic in that. I think the STEM thing's a little overdone. I would actually see humanities as actually very inspirational. And as you, as an aside, some of the best software developers, for example, that I've ever met and had the pleasure of working with, were actually not STEM folks traditionally. There are oh, interesting. I mean, you could, you could help me in my business if you could just like, we could put that on the megaphone and you could tell all my clients, like, you don't need Carnegie Mellon computers. You don't. You don't. Some of the best are self-taught anthropologists and yeah. philosophy majors because they just think intuitively differently than the traditional Carnegie Mellon or Stanford or MIT kind of route. And so I looked at myself, I said, well, if I want to be a well-balanced, thoughtful leader at some point. I need to have that. And then I knew business was something that I, I was naturally drawn to because it's somewhat simple in a sense, somewhat simple. Now, everybody knows business is incredibly complicated uh, to do well at scale. Uh, but then I also knew that I needed a regulatory framework as well, because I think every, virtually every industry is regulated mm. by some entity or somebody. Yeah. And so therefore, I knew that I needed to go get the top-notch public policy background. I needed to get uh, the best business plan I could find. Um, which I believe is University of Chicago. Uh, they're all the same, you know, all the top five, whatever, or they're always moving around, but I think they're really great. Um, and I had already gone to Harvard for my graduate program, so I didn't want to go to Harvard again for another degree, just too much double downing of the same environment and thinking. So yeah. I wanted to branch out and find a comparable school. And so University of Chicago was just a, an amazing institution. I highly yeah. recommend it. And then that's, and that, I'm awesome. a state from University of Maryland, so I loved it. So that was it enough schooling but you know i think some of the smartest people i ever met never stepped foot in college yeah you can get you can get to the same destination with lots of different paths definitely but i, I would actually argue that you're i mean just because i've done this for so long um sure. i think 
obviously it can't hurt all the education that you've had, but also yeah. really the investment banking, how yes. to look at deal flow, how to analyze uh, deals and companies. Um, how did you end up in that? Did you get recruited out of school? Yeah, so uh, I went to work for Goldman uh, after I did a stint in consulting, uh, strategy consulting. They're very synonymous, you know, comparable kind of, you know, uh, or adjacent uh, types of roles, you know, consultants become bankers, bankers become consultants. Um, and so I was recruited by Goldman Sachs, uh, just spent a little bit of time there, this is 2001. Um, so we know what happened in 2001. So I was in investment banking uh, at 85 Broad Street, which was their sort of their tower back in the day. Um, they've since moved since then. And I enjoyed my time in banking. It was great. You know, I remember thinking it's, I remember it clearly waking up, getting to the office at eight and taking the car service back at four in the morning and rinse, repeat, you know, basically ad infinitum if I could tolerate it. Um, and, and the treat was like, Hey, I get a Lincoln town car driving me home. It's like, yeah, but you're driving home at three in the morning <laughs> and you're going to repeat, you know, take the subway in at eight in the morning. Yeah. Uh, downtown. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's good training, uh, because it tells you how hard you can work. Oh my gosh. I, We've had a few, I've had a few friends. I did a lot of recruiting for investment bankers in New York. And then I've had a few people on the podcast who talk about it. They're like, ah, yeah, I slept under my desk. <laughs> and like that, that was normal and you know just yep. the ordering in and lots of partying from what i've been told sure um, you gotta have you gotta have the balance but like you looking back going i don't know how i actually survived those years is kind of crazy um but it, what a great foundation and you've got some um you know i'm sure just huge network from all of these different um schools and just companies all all incredible that you can tap into as you started to think about i'm gonna fast forward a little bit to jenny life because i want to obviously get to that we could talk all day you're super fun um <laughs> but as you went to go start to think about you know creating a startup like tell me about the idea i know that uh, your wife jenny was um formidable in that whole decision through a conversation that you had is what i read um, yep. tell me, take, take us back to that conversation. Yeah. So I love how you said my wife is formidable. She is very formidable. And when you meet her, you'll, <laughs> she's got that ha happy, quiet. happy wife, happy life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's, she's a force for sure. in a good way. So my wife and I, uh, were walking, um, uh, in our neighborhood here. Um, and, uh, we had our newborn daughter, um, and we were trying to help her go to sleep. And then we were having this conversation around, you know, uh, what happens if something happens to me? What happens if something happens to you? What do you do? You know, as um, um, military training tells you, like, how to have stored procedures, if you will, not technical stored procedures as developers, but, like, you know, checklists and items. You just kind of know how to do. You just do it. Yeah. And, so, hey, look, if something happens, you don't have the time for emotion. You just have to execute, you know, and don't worry about anything else. And so we got into conversations around financial products and services, and, and I said, hey, I have life insurance, so you'd be good to go, Jen. And she said, well, what's life insurance? And as an insurance guy, I was like, wait, excuse me? You know, how, could, how could the wife of, all I do is talk about my work all day long, you know, when I'm at home, I should say. And she said, I don't know what life insurance is. And so I explained it to her and she's like, oh, okay, that seems like a great product. I'm like, yeah, you do not know about it? She's like, no, I have no idea what that is. And yeah. then so we're doing laps around the, around the lake and, and she said, well, let me go get life insurance. And then she went through the process. Uh, it was not fun necessarily and it was too arduous. And she turned to me and she said, you know what? 
I'm a fairly educated, you know, middle of the road American woman. And if, uh, if I don't know what it is, I bet you 28 million or I bet you, well, that's the number but that we know now, but yeah, uh, I bet you lots of people don't know about this. And if it's economical, we should probably solve for this problem. And she knows that I love starting, you know, businesses and or projects. And she's like, you know, you'd be perfect to do this, you know, as an insurance guy. And so we humbly started it. Um, and she said, you know what, you could probably name the company after me too. You know, and that was her thing, you know, That's I was like, awesome. sure, sure, sure. Right. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll think about it. And then I got some information from my friends at McKinsey and some other place, consulting firm. And we looked at some data sets and, you know, cause for me, it's both qualitative and quantitative. Yeah. It's down and bottom up. So you could see how my brain works. I'm like, it's comprehensive, you know, uh, mutually exclusive, cumulatively exhaustive. That's an acronym that all consultants use. Like, you know, basically a totality of information as much as you can and then digest it, synthesize it. And so we looked at the data and of course the, the normal origin story is very important because we're all human. And so humbly we started with that. And um, so my, at my wife's behest, she said, you know, you should start solving for this problem now. And, and she's right. Her intuition is spot on because uh, women are the CEOs of families, whether mm -hmm. people recognize that or not, they're the chief executive officers of families. They're the long, long pole in the tent that keeps a family afloat. If something happens to her, the family has a hard time stabilizing. Absolutely. And, yeah, and so was this just a miss for other competitors or is this a thing that you have to um, like, tell me, tell me, is this, and this is me actually asking as a woman and not as a CEO woman where that would actually impact financially the business, the, the family also. Um, but just as a, as a woman and a mother of three, is this a, is this something we have to brand it differently to try to target women and, or is it an actual different type of offering? or just more accessible or how does it, how's the differentiation come out in, in the world? Yeah. So it's, it's all that plus more. Um, I will tell you that historically um, it was actually illegal for women to have life insurance, believe it or not, hmm. believe it or not, you know, until the women's suffragist movement and sort of this, you know, this uh, empowerment movement that started with Betty Friedan and with the feminine mystique and, the voters' rights um, uh, demonstrations, it was actually illegal for women even to have life insurance. Hard to believe in America it was. And so if you start from that origin, then it brings us here. It's like, well, how can that have been? So let's solve right. for that. Right. The industry has overlooked, and again, I'm an insurance guy, so it's instantly going to go to insurance uh, industry stuff, and please pull me back. But for the sake of our audience's delight, let's just bring it back to something more. Yeah, general. I know I want, I need to learn. It's um, the in, insurance industry typically and financial services writ large have focused on the male um, breadwinner archetype. Mm. You know, the traditional male breadwinner. He's the one that needs insurance. He's the one that we should spend time educating about risk management for their family or financial asset management. And, and the woman was always sort of as an aside, like, oh, you know, can I translate this for you kind of thing? Sort of dismissive, if you will, or at the very mm -hmm. least, ignoring, ignoring that, you know, thing. And, and you can't really clap with one hand. You need two hands to clap. Absolutely. Right? Why only have insurance and financial services geared towards one hand? Why not the other hand as well? And if you have a family that has a traditional two-person family, like two-guardian family, let's just say, and to have a resonant clap, you have to have both parties respected. Yeah. And so 
looked at that and said, you know, it's a matter of respect first and foremost. It's a matter of recognition. It's a matter of accessibility. It's a matter of price. And then it's a matter of positioning. So when you say which one of these, it's, it's a composite. It's, it's all of that. You know, for example, women have a pink tax, right? Women pay more for so many items that just are astonishing. Dry cleaning, it's crazy. Moreover, the pink tax is, is associated with the fact that there's products and services that they absolutely should have that are ignored by the industry or have been traditionally. What types yeah. of product? What types of products and services? And yeah. that's my first question. And I don't want to forget my second one, but it's around philosophy. Of um, are you finding at a at a dinner party or a cocktail party when you describe what you do that people have a quick like oh, I don't believe in life insurance or I'm all about life insurance. I find that like we're we're big life insurance people. Yeah. Um, but I have met we have friends who don't have any life insurance. So like that's just not that's our scary. thing. Yeah, that's scary. Uh, that's scary. That's <laughs> <a> scary thing. <laughs> well, so so it's interesting. So um, when when you say it's a, it's a composite, why have why has no one created an insurance company for women? And you know, it's one of those simple questions like your child asks you, like, "Real, why is the sky blue?" Well, you kind of have to look it up on Wikipedia, or, or you kind of have to yeah. open up your textbook to be like, "Oh, right, it's the chemical composition." the soup in the atmosphere and bends the light so, and it looks blue and et cetera, et cetera. Great, I get it. The simplest reason is people did not care. The insurance industry, financial services, didn't care about servicing the unique needs of moms and women. Simply put, mm -hmm. I know that's a broad brush and some people would say, oh, uh, back in my day, we did you know, pay pamphlets yeah. for women. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but that's not in earnest and that's not holistic and that's not with focus. you know. So we, we humbly started this company with my wife um, and she's not a startup person. So she's not on the, on the team in that sense, you know, day to day, but she's very much involved. And so I think that's how we started it. Um, and so you asked the question. Did you bootstrap it or how did you? Yeah. So we, we bootstrapped it with our own personal savings. Um, and then, um, and then we raised some VC. Uh, it was very important for us to raise venture capital from the industry itself. And that might be really iconoclastic or, or odd to say that. Well, the reason why we methodically pursued the right types of financial investors in our mission is because insurance and financial services is very complicated, state by state, uh, mm. federal state models, and sometimes even local uh, in certain circumstances. And so if you think about it, we wanted to make sure that if we were going to build a transformative, generationally um, beneficent, uh, beneficial branded company, we wanted to make sure that we had investors from the very early on from the industry that understood what we were trying to solve for. That makes um, sense. It's one thing to take VC money from Andreessen Horowitz or Madrona or other places who don't have that technical expertise about compliance and regulatory matters from the industry. It's very different to get it from the industry corporate venture capital. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how much have you, how much have you raised? We raised across two rounds only $5 million. Um, yeah. And I say only because nowadays they're massive mega. Well, rounds. yeah, but you also don't want to raise more than you need and have to deal with all the dilution. Think, you know. Exactly. It's one of these things where I think uh, Rockefeller did this thing where I believe he started it, um, John Rockefeller, when he would um, uh, donate money to certain causes. 
he would ask them, well, how much do you need? They'd say, well, we need, you know, $100,000 to build this library in Cleveland or, or Cincinnati or what have you. And he'd say, well, I'll give you 90000 You guys have to raise the other 10000 because there's that sort of motivational factor of like staying lean and staying focused. Right. And so therefore we deliberately, our two-pronged strategy was get the industry involved from day one because they created the mess. They should be part of the solution. And we want to learn from them. Like what were their assumptions that are faulty that we can clearly outline? Yeah, they've obviously learned something from this. Exactly, exactly. And then the other thing is that they have uh, insights that traditional financial venture capital investors might necessarily not have. Hmm. And what also happens is it de-risks subsequent rounds. What I mean by this is investors, this is the hardest lesson I ever learned when I first started my first company, which is, which was, you know, so much learnings. I thought venture investors were risk takers. Like, oh, of course you want to invest in this. Of course, I don't know what my monetization is going to be. That's why you're a venture investor. You're not a sure thing investor, right? Well, it turns out they're not risk takers. They want mm-hmm. to de-risk as much as possible absolutely logical and reasonable now in retrospect being in the industry in the in the trenches for almost 12 14 years now across multiple companies and so what we wanted to do was make sure that our subsequent investors who were going to put a lot more money into the company knew that the industry was already supporting this innovation mm. right we're not disrupting anything we're yeah. innovating you yeah. know i often tell my teammates like you know 20 year olds 21 year olds want to disrupt industries 41-year-olds want to innovate industries. Absolutely. And how many employees do you have at this point? We have, we're about 20 right now, fully loaded across all types of employment. Yeah. Um, And so we're scrappy. Uh, We raise a little bit of money. We're revenue positive. We're growing at, I want to say like 200 some odd percent a month over a month. Um, when you uh, normalize against COVID-19 uh, perturbation, we're growing. So if we normalize against that, we're growing yeah. triple month over month. And, and that's just simply because my teammates are absolutely amazing. Good it for just, you. Good for you. Yeah. How, has, how has this the pandemic impacted your business? So uh, people's understanding of mortality, as odd as it may sound, in normal days outside of COVID-19 are, are not there. People don't think about mortality. They just don't. Mm. They're like, oh, I'm going to live forever. You know, of course I'm going to live forever. Like me, I'm doing yoga today and then I'm doing <laughs> fasting, intermittent fasting. Like, they just think they're going to have this. <laughs> this is false. There's nothing in the universe that lasts forever. Uh, we don't even know if the universe will last forever, quite honestly. And so COVID-19 has only done one thing, which is cause people to think about on a daily basis, oh, goodness, what if I die? Or how do I ameliorate? ameliorate the impacts of death. And to that extent, it does help our category. Quite honestly, it does. Because well, what of course. It I was that, thinking you must be on fire because people are like, oh shit, I need to get my, and also people having time. I'm hearing a lot of people say, I got my will together, that this like to-do list of like, oh, I need to scrub my kind of basic paperwork and get it all up to date. Absolutely. You'd be shocked at how little preparation fellow Americans like ourselves have. So little preparation. And I think that we're working on a lot of different areas to work on those things. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll have new products being rolled out fairly soon around some of these things. And yeah. so we basically started the company with that. And then the way we created our company was um, we didn't want to just sell products. You know, we didn't just want to be a shill like, oh, there's a company created with a nifty website, a nifty app, and it's just selling the same old thing. It's not. What we did was something different. Sean. We, did, we said, look, we're focusing on moms and women. 
she's in the center. Everything that we build for her, whether it's a paid product, whether it's a free product, whether it's a freemium model, has to be supportive of her life. So we have a, a, an ecosystem strategy, if you will. We want to have an ecosystem of products that are priced for free or somewhere in the spectrum that intuitively can help the mom with their day-to-day -day life. What we mean by that is we launched the first vaccination app ever. So right now, JennyVax is a vaccination app that consumers can download for free and store their vaccination records for their entire family on the HIPAA compliance software and the whole bit. Such that now you don't have to go fetch you know, in your pencil drawer upstairs or call the you know, pediatrician to get their vaccination records for your child. This is, so, this is so funny because as a mother of three, who's like, oh, they're going back to camp. Now I need to go call and be like, when was their last chicken pox vax? When is it? I always have to deal. And I'm like, this is so inefficient. Can't somebody solve for this? Good job. Yay, you. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, it's in beta right now. It's live. You can download it. You can play with it. Give us feedback. How can we make it better for you? Like we launched that and it's free. We don't make any money out of it. As a matter of fact, it costs us money, right? The reason why we did this is because that was one of our ways we could show the world that we mean what our vision is. You know, sometimes companies have visions, but they don't really have ex exhibitions of proof points of that vision. Mm -hmm. our, we're taking care of mom. We're trying to simplify our life. Our motto is life uncomplicated. I like that. We have, a, we have a primary research panel of moms that we routinely just ask, survey, like, hey, what keeps you up at night? What did you worry about on Friday? What did you eat on Thursday? You know, what is your life like now? Or has it been pro? We learned a lot from that. And so a lot of mothers were like, you know what? Summer's coming up and I got to send my kid to this camp or I'm going to send him to Uncle Joe's, you know, cabin in Utah. But I need to make sure my vaccinations are up to date. And they're like, gee, it'd be great if we'd have to do with paper stuff. And we're like, huh, tell us more. So we use that to develop new products. And frankly, JennyVax is live on both Android and iOS. And it's just a way for families to just download or just take a picture of your uh, vaccination record, enter it, and store it. And you can share it and control who you want that vaccination information to go to. So now for the first time in humanity, I dare say, you can literally text message or email on your iPhone your vaccination records for anyone in your family to anyone in the world you want to. And that's you can control great. permission. So that's you can say, great. you know what? You can control permission. That's great. That's one of the things that we're doing. Yeah. The reason why I bring that up is because we're trying to build the world's first insurance company for moms and women. But we can't do it the way the industry's always done, which is, hey, what's the cost of customer acquisition? Let's spend money on this. Let's do branding. Mm -hmm. Let's do Facebook. Let's do this and that. And then we'll have some margin and we'll sell the policy and voila, rinse, repeat 28 million times again. It's, it's not the way I want this company to be set in the right direction to execute, which is why we said, let's have the mom and the woman right in the middle and ask her questions. What can we do to make your life easier? Is mm -hmm. it, so therefore, outside of our mission and vision is our goals. Like either we help you save money, we help you make more money, we help you protect your money, or we improve your lifestyle. Yeah. Those four pillars, everything we will ever do has to solve at least one of those pillars. So what that does is it creates regimentation and new product development. And stop me at any time if this becomes too business No, no, I, I, it's not business schooly at all. I like it because you're saying there's a, back, there's a backdrop and a place, that there's a, there is a target by which we're measuring everything. 
And if Absolutely. it doesn't, if it doesn't kind of make it through the screening of like, did it solve for one of these things, then yeah. we're losing our mission and we're getting all over the place. And so let's stay focused on our customer. But then you started talking about um, customer, you know, cost of customer acquisition. How do you acquire customers? What's your strategy on that? Yeah, so we acquire customers um, many different ways. Uh, we have a very successful uh, television campaign um, because we use data to find those channels and um, areas where women and moms are seeking out information or sometimes getting entertainment off their busy days, mm -hmm. you know, the hours. And so we're using television. We have a composite. One thing we don't do clearly is we don't raise money from our investors to give it to Zuckerberg or Larry Page. What we don't want to do is play that game because it's not, it's not who we are. You know, we have a mission, we have a story, we have a story arc. And you can only do that on podcasts with hosts that understand and resonate. Anna Ferris is someone that, um, that we respect tremendously. I think she was in, from Seattle as well. She's a Hollywood actress and a mother of two, I believe, uh, young children. And, you know, we advertise on podcasts. We partner with podcasters. Um, and then we have television channels. And then we also do some interesting things. You know, we advertise in the physician channel. We do all kinds mm -hmm. of interesting things because our mission is moms and women. You know, yeah, I, I have an idea for you. I actually have an idea. This might sure. not even work, but I'm like, oh, I should connect you. You might already know her. But I was thinking you should be doing some sort of partnering maybe uh, with Jill Angelo from Genev. Um, mm. She's been on my podcast and I'll connect you guys if it makes sense. But um, I'd welcome her. She's got a company that does education and now has a product around menopause. Oh. Um, which was just like this, it's like a, such an underserved, but we all, I mean, every woman, half of the universe yep. eventually goes through menopause. And it's like, nobody was targeting that group and educating that group on, on symptoms and how to, um, how to get educated. And she's built, she's building quite the business. Um, awesome. so she might be an interesting one. I would, I would just love to meet her and yeah, understand she's great. how she's solving problems. Yeah. Now. Yeah. She would, she would be a good one. Well, you know, you, you mentioned something interesting that, so we, we looked at this market space. Um, Geico was started to serve government employees. As you know, government employees insurance company is what Geico's came for. Warren mm. Buffett um, witnessed the power of serving a segmented population. Like I'm going to serve these people. Um, and he saw how Geico was really just doing well for government employees because they tend to be risk averse. They pay their bills on time. They drive safely. You know, those are great people to insure, you know? Absolutely. And it's the most successful company he's ever had. We looked at USAA. As a former investment banker, I love comparables. And so a comparable for us when we launched this with my teammates was USAA, you know, a wonderful, amazing platform for insurance and financial services for the military. But combined together, you know, from their origin was maybe 4.5% of the population. So when my, when my teammates, my founding teammates and my, my wife and all of us were looking at this organically, but then we also had to sort of uh, sandwich it with like analysis and, and market strategies and market entry analyses. And we looked at this and said, what's the largest affinity group in the, group in the world? Women. Women and moms are 51% of the population. And aren't, country, they, aren't they like 80 something percent of the decision making on any sort of purchases? Yes. 
Right. So, so if you if you multiplex that information and get that signal together, um, what you see is the fact that you scratch your head and say, how come no one built this yet? Like, how come no one's built a, you know, an amazing multi-line insurance company for women and moms? And so that's when we knew we were onto something. We're like, someone's got, you know, the universe doesn't like voids. You know, there's mm -hmm. oftentimes a uh, law of physics or theorem of physics that there is no void. Like there ha the universe wants to fill that void. And so by golly, that's what we're trying to fill that void and do it in a constructive manner. You know, we don't care if someone buys life insurance from us or not. We honestly, <laughs> my investors might not like me saying this publicly, but for me, it's more important for people to understand the mission of what we're trying to solve, which is recognizing women and moms and their contribution and the tremendous workload that they have. We are trying to build services that help ameliorate any pain points that they have. Yeah. And from that, if they feel comfortable with our brand, if they feel comfortable with our brand, then if they want to choose to find well-priced, great A-rated products, then they can get it from us. It's kind of like you buy from people you trust first and not just based on price. Right. You know, like, do I trust this team? Yeah. Okay. Why? Because they're keeping my, you know, uh, vaccination records for my children. Absolutely. And, and very mission and very mission driven and, and very focused and a, a clearly a very smart team. I'm excited for what you're building and I love hearing about all the growth. How are you, how are you finding time? I know we kind of touched on it. You've got the guitar, you got the three kids, we got COVID. How are you finding time to uh, have some self-care and kind of unwind um, outside of, of work as far as like just on a random Saturday? Are you, are you able to spend time with the kids or get some alone time? So uh, again, I'm not like most guests you've had. Your guest list is amazing and very impressive. Um, my downtime is actually doing the dishes manually with, <laughs> with my headphones on and listening to podcasts of various different things. Um, you know, uh, various different topics, just like, yeah. I love diversity. I like, I like to do that too. And I now I've started to do audible. Yeah. Um, and I actually just downloaded the, the Lenny Kravitz new book. Yes. Um, which I'm really excited about. Um, I know that you're, you know, Mr. Musician. So I, I wanted to share that one with you. Yeah, what, would you, what, would you what would you say, Chirag, ultimately fuels you? I always ask that at the end of the podcast. I, I feel like I'm getting to know you well enough to know I kind of have a sense, but I'm curious what you would say to that answer. I mean, to that I think, sure, sure. No, a great question. Uh, Shauna, I think what, what um, fuels me is really simply, I want to help make the world better, but I can't do it by being quote unquote, a do-gooder. Like, you know, I don't think that's scalable in a sense. For me, I have a certain set of talents. Uh, I know that sounds like a movie star, uh, <laughs> Liam Neeson or someone in some movie. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere. I'm just repeating here. I have a certain set of skills and talents. <laughs> I want to scalably apply that to make the world better because you have children, I have children. This is a beautiful world. It's a beautiful country. Can we do something using the, the structures we have in place uh, transparency, openness, capitalism, respect for people's rights, all that stuff. Can we do something better? And I do believe that uh, conscious capitalism is a very effective, scalable tool for me to make a better impact. Yeah, and at I the completely end of the day, agree. Thank you. And at the end of the day, I said to myself, you know, could I have been an astronaut? What could I have done there? Well, am I making more potentially better impact through s s conscious capitalism than if I had been an astronaut? 
And so that way I feel comfortable with myself, like, hey, I never became an astronaut. Yeah, but that's okay, because I'm actually doing things at scale that's probably more positively impacting the world now. Yeah, I, I, I can see, I think it's easier to be a CEO than an astronaut. I just watched the show on Netflix, Away. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you're an astronaut, like wannabe, yes. watch yes. it. It's Hillary Swank. Did you see it? Yeah. No, I haven't oh seen God. it. I, know she, I have to I say, I did get a little claustrophobia. I don't think I could imagine being like stuck inside. <laughs> you know like that's incredible that that's even on your docket that like maybe i could have been an astronaut that never crossed my mind to be an astronaut <laughs> you know i don't have fear i guess one of the things is like i was dropped a lot a lot as a child i think because the way i am wired i don't have fear like yeah. i honestly don't you know i've jumped out of airplanes i've done all kinds of things i don't have fear and i think maybe it's just naivete or just i've been dropped a lot but i'm not <laughs> fearful i'm i'm not fear driven i'm objective driven like how can it be done you know sometimes when people say you know you need to do 10 pull-ups to make it through this fitness test you know and i was looked at like who did the most like what was the highest number yeah because that's pull-ups? a possibility that means that that's right. possible right someone did it okay could i try to get close to that at least it's motivational yeah and so i, I try to tell my teammates that as well and i will tell you something funny about our insurance industry you know how the fastest way to get all the delicious um shrimp cocktails at a dinner party is you tell someone you work in the insurance industry and they'll literally just turn around and go away and you can have all the delicious shrimp cocktail you want in the entire because they, they do they think you're going to try to sell them no it's just that their mind just goes like it's not sexy you know it's just like yeah. oh, okay it's a little dry it's a little dry but yeah. we all but we're all going to live and we're all going to die and we all need it so y'all need it. better to be better to be educated about it yeah, awesome. absolutely. Yeah, and so we're we're really grateful. Um, a couple of things we do on our team. Our team, as you know, you're in the HR space. You, you have a fabulous executive search firm. Um, you know, there's four things that we do uh, in our team when we bring people on. Four pillars are very simple. Teamwork. Very teamwork is our number one. Um, I can't do anything without my amazing teammates, and I would love to add more. Um, in data, we trust. Uh, because everybody has biases and heuristics and things like that, particularly with us recognizing that all have biases. Let's get them out on the table. But data and data we trust. Radical transparency. And it's because, you know, in teams, people, you'd be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be shocked because you're a business owner too and a team builder, like politics and-, and, and Oh, yeah, like hoarding information or taking just, credit. It just, yeah. It only takes two people to do that. Yeah, like, it doesn't fly. Yeah. And so I said, we're not going to have that. We're going to have radical transparency, teamwork, and in data we trust. And then the, and the, the fourth pillar is just ownership. Like, you own it. Like, this is your, I trust you. You're going to build a campaign on, you know, this thing. Or you're going to give me the analysis, and we're going to execute on that. And I think that's what helps people retain and enjoy their work, is those four things for me. Absolutely. Those are those are very easy to um, to grasp. I think sometimes companies overcomplicate these things, and yours are very tangible and and um, and measurable. It's like they're either going to yep. be a fit for you or not, and believe in your mission or not. And it'll be really easy for you to build, a, continue to build an incredible company. I love what you're building, and I'm super grateful to have you on, and yeah. hope to yeah. see you in like the real world at some point. <laughs> Stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Chirag. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.